Well, good afternoon, podcasters, and welcome to episode number 27 of our Banking Litigation Podcast. Our guest today is Annabelle, who has come round from behind the glass uh, to sit with us, um, as this is her last uh, podcast before starting the LPC and then returning as a trainee to HSF in March 2022. So thank you, Annabelle, for all the work you've done, and we look forward to hearing from you in a minute. Kerry, to cheer you up, midsummer is less than two weeks away. Super duper, John. And then the nights will start drawing in again. Ooh. Mm. Anyway, look, um, hello from us. Uh, we'll be kicking off today with a deep dive into a recent Quince Care case, an increasingly regular feature on our podcast. And I believe uh, it also has a dishonest assistance angle as well. So obviously I'll be deferring to Kerry, my co-host, for this one given that this topic is a firm favourite of hers. Kerry. Thanks, John. Yeah, I'm not sure if any of our listeners have a favourite duty of care, but if I had to name one, it would indeed be Quince Care. And the case I'll be looking at today is the recent judgment in the ongoing saga of Stanford International Bank and HSBC. I think this is a really useful judgment as it provides Court of Appeal authority that the Quince Care duty is limited to protecting the customers of a financial institution and does not extend to protect the customer's creditors. So before I get going, if you know absolutely nothing about the Quince Care duty and then you're really missing out um, and you feel that you'd like to know a little bit more about it and get better informed, I'd recommend that you hit the pause button on this episode and head over to our recent special edition podcast discussing the Quince Care duty in far more depth. A link for this is in the show notes. But if you do pause it, don't forget to unpause it and do come back to us. Yeah, indeed. Um, But if you're a bit like me and try to squeeze podcasts into your lunchtime walk, then I'll very quickly recap the duty now. The Quince Care duty is, of course, named after the case in which it was first established, Barclays Bank and Quince Care. And it arises where a bank has received a payment mandate from an authorised signatory of its customer and executed the order in circumstances where, allegedly, there were red flags to suggest that the order was an attempt to misappropriate the funds of the customer. As this is a deep dive, we'll start off with some brief facts, which some of our avid podcasters might recall from our discussion of the High Court's judgment back in our 22nd podcast episode, which aired in October 2020. Again, you'll find a link to that one in the show notes. So the claim uh, was brought by the liquidators of Stanford International Bank, which was running a Ponzi scheme. And the proceedings were brought against a correspondent bank that operated its accounts, not knowing that the scheme was a fraud. The liquidators claimed that the defendant bank had breached its quince care duty to take sufficient care that monies paid out from the account under its control were being properly paid, alleging that the duty required the defendant bank to have reached its conclusion that there was something very wrong and to have frozen payments out of the accounts at an earlier date than it in fact did. The claim was therefore to recover the sums paid out by the defendant bank after that date even though the majority of those funds were used to repay genuine investors in the Ponzi scheme. This seems like quite a novel argument, Kerry, especially in comparison with the usual quince care scenario, where the person authorising the payment mandate is often the person who then makes off with the money. 
Yeah, exactly. It really was. And it's an interesting situation for the court to have to grapple with and potentially quite a dangerous one from the perspective of financial institutions, both for its repercussions for other Ponzi scheme scenarios where the liquidators are looking around for a deep pocketed defendant to sue to increase the company's pool of assets. And also more generally in seeking to extend the duty to the creditors of the bank's customers. But the Court of Appeal took a strong stance and struck out the Quince Care claim on the basis that even if the payments were in breach of the bank's Quince Care duty, those sums went to genuine investors who had invested in the Ponzi scheme and therefore the claimant customer, the insolvent Ponzi scheme, had actually suffered no loss. In other words, the monies paid out to investors reduced the Ponzi scheme's liabilities to the whole pool of investors, so the net asset position of the Ponzi scheme remained the same. In reaching this conclusion, the Court of Appeal overturned the decision of the High Court, which had dismissed the bank's strikeout application, finding it arguable that a loss had been suffered. In a nutshell, the High Court relied on the company's state of insolvency as a key factor, finding that if the bank had performed its quince care duty, more cash would have been available to pay other creditors once the company's insolvency process began. With all all respect, Kerry, the High Court's approach does seem pretty flawed to me. It seems to have assumed that the bank owed a direct duty to the creditors, which surely can't be right. Precisely, John. And the Court of Appeal agreed with you. It said that the bank's duty was to the company alone, as explained in the Supreme Court's decision in Singularis. I suppose the situation might have been different once the liquidation process got going, though. Yeah, so essentially the problem with the High Court's approach was to confuse the company's position before and after the inception of an insolvency process. And John mentioned that there was a dishonest assistance claim too? Yep, correct. Thank you for the reminder, Annabelle. So the Court of Appeal upheld the High Court's decision to strike out the dishonest assistance claim. In this context, the claimant argued that the bank's senior management dishonestly allowed the bank to be run in such a way that nobody ever got to the point of realising that there was a massive Ponzi scheme going on. But the claimant failed to identify any specific individuals with so-called blind eye knowledge of the fraud. The Court of Appeal said that the claimant could not hide behind the fact that the bank was a large corporation. It emphasised that dishonesty and blind eye knowledge allegations against corporations, large or small, must still be evidenced by the dishonesty of one or more natural persons. And this sort of blind eye knowledge cannot be constituted by a decision not to inquire into untargeted or speculative suspicion. I see. So overall, Kerry, a reassuring outcome for financial institutions faced with similar quince care and dishonest assistance claims from liquidators, I think, uh, in relation to payment mandates uh, of client accounts. Yeah, very much so. And if you're interested in further detail on this one, there is, as ever, a link in the show notes. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, Well, now turning to our second segment, we're going to take a look at two cases that are unfortunately linked by the fact that they arose out of um, global crises. The the first uh, arose from the 2008 global financial crisis, and the second uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And whilst the pandemic is first and foremost obviously a humanitarian crisis, it it seems pretty inevitable to us that commercial disputes will follow, given uh, the secondary impact on financial markets. 
As many of our podcasters will be aware, the litigation market tends to be counter-cyclical, so that in times of market turmoil, we will often see an upward trend in disputes. And this has been illustrated all too well by the 2008 global financial crisis and claims um, that still filter through the system, uh, as illustrated by the first case, Annabelle, that you're going to cover now. Thanks, John. So I'll begin with Dixon and Santander, which, as John mentioned, has its factual roots in the global financial crisis of 2008. Somewhat unsurprisingly, the legal principle issue in this case was limitation, in particular, Section 321B of the Limitation Act 1980. And this is a provision on which claimants have placed increasing reliance in order to try to extend the life of financial services disputes arising out of pre-2008 dealings. So, Annabelle, why don't you give us a quick snapshot summary of the provision? Certainly, Kerry. Section 321B provides that, where a fact relevant to the claimant's claim has been deliberately concealed, the limitation period will not begin to run until the claimant has discovered, or could with reasonable diligence have discovered, the concealment. Turning to the case itself, the claims arose out of finance facilities made by the defendant banks to a vehicle purchase and hire company. The banks made a demand for repayment of all outstanding liabilities in 2008, which was not satisfied, and the company was ultimately liquidated in 2009. The claims were brought by the sole director and shareholder of the company against the banks for breach of contract and for negligent misstatement. The banks applied to the court to strike out the claims on the basis that they were time barred and had no real prospect of success. So I'm going to hazard a guess that this is where Section 321B of the Limitation Act came into play. Yes, indeed, Kerry. So while there was no dispute that the primary litigation period had expired, the claimant argued that the limitation period had been extended by virtue of that section. The claimant pointed to certain alleged facts which he said had been deliberately concealed. For example, documents created by the bank at the time, but not seen by the claimant until a later date. The claimant argued that he had brought the action within six years of discovery of those facts, which he could not with reasonable diligence have discovered any earlier. Overall, the court held that there was no real prospect that the claimant could establish that the allegedly concealed facts were essential to his claim. And so the High Court granted the bank's application to strike out the claims. It's interesting to see the court uh, taking a robust approach to limitation um, by disposing of these sorts of claims at, at the summary stage. Um, I think there's been an uptick recently in decisions concerning uh, limitation issues, as you say, where the claims emanate from the global financial crisis. Uh, do you think there's any particular aspects of the judgment worth highlighting? Well, while there is a lot that can be taken away from the court's discussion of the case law surrounding the provision, I think there really are two aspects of the judgment to draw out here. Firstly, the court emphasised that the allegedly concealed facts must be those that are essential for the claimant to prove in order to establish its prima facie case. So the test will not be met if the facts only make the claimant's case stronger. Secondly, in reaching its decision, the court was careful to distinguish between concealed evidence on the one hand, which would not be sufficient to trigger Section 321B, and on the other, concealed facts, without which the claim is incomplete, which will be a sufficient trigger. For a little more detail on the court's guidance, I'll direct you all to the show notes for a link to our blog post. Um, And also, it's worth mentioning that there's been a further case considering limitation issues in similar sort of circumstances, which is Boyce and RBS, and we'll be putting out a blog post on this soon. Thank you very much for the reminder, Kerry. And thank you, uh, Annabel. Um, I'll take the second case, um, which is the Bank of New York Mellon against... Sign or Sinny, forgive my pronunciation, in which a High Court master considered the doctrine of frustration. Now, this was in the context of a claim by landlords of commercial premises for payment of rent due since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and the imposition of consequent restrictions in March 2020. 
And although this is set in a non-financial context, this will doubtless be of interest to financial institutions considering the COVID-19 pandemic, given that this is one of the few cases to date in which the courts have considered the arguments of frustration in that context. So, John, shall we provide our podcasters with a quick reminder of the doctrine of frustration? Very helpful as always, Kerry. Very happy to. Uh, so, so frustration occurs where performance of a contract has become so radically different, is the term, to what was contemplated at the time of contracting, that it would be unjust for the contract to continue. The effect of frustration is to bring the contract to an end so that it cannot then be revived. And you may recall, I did when I was reading this, the so-called coronation cases uh, arising from property and vessels being rented to watch the coronation of Edward VII and what happened to those contracts when the coronation was postponed. But turning back to the current case, the master rejected the tenant's arguments that the leases had been, again, quoting, temporarily frustrated during the periods in which the premises were forced to close, finding that there is no such thing as temporary frustration as a matter of law. That doesn't seem particularly surprising, John. No, I I agree, Annabelle. But I think the decision is also of interest because of the analysis as as to why the leases were not uh, frustrated altogether. I won't bore you with the details, which can be found by following the link in the show notes. But uh, in summary, the decision shows that the use of the doctrine is very limited and that the courts are consistent in their message that the bar has been set very high to establish frustration. Of course, it's always open to the parties to include a force majeure clause in their contract, spelling out what's to happen if unexpected events intervene. Yes, absolutely right, Kerry. And that will enable the parties to avoid the strictures of the doctrine of frustration. But obviously, that's a question of the wording of the contract. Uh, But for example, this could provide for obligations to be temporarily suspended if performance is prevented by specified types of occurrence. And I'm sure we'll see more of that now that we've had Um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Now, for one of our more classic categories, disclosure. Uh, Annabelle and I have two quickfire updates to speed through on this topic. So, Annabelle, I think you're going to kick off. That's right. Thanks, John. Um, My next case is Berkeley Square and Lance Property. In this case, the High Court found that documents held by the claimant's parent companies and individuals connected with those entities were within the claimant's control for the purposes of their disclosure obligations in the litigation. This judgment is the latest in a line of first instance decisions which have held that a party will have the requisite degree of control over a third party's documents for disclosure purposes if there is an arrangement or understanding, which means that the documents are within the party's practical control, even though the party does not have a presently enforceable legal right to obtain the documents. However, this is interesting as it's the first case where a subsidiary has been held to have control of documents in the custody of a shareholder or parent. The decision emphasises that whether or not there is such an arrangement is a question of fact, and the existence of such an arrangement may be inferred from the surrounding circumstances. Given the often complex corporate structures of financial institutions, both subsidiary and parent entities should bear in mind the risk of the court inferring the existence of a control arrangement of this sort, either from the day-to-day dealings of the companies or from the approach taken to the disclosure exercise itself. Very uh, interesting, and um, it comes up surprisingly frequently, Annabelle, so thank you very much. And look, I'll continue this disclosure drill with Meng and HSBC, uh, which considered an application under the Banker's Book Evidence Act 1879. Now, I suspect many of our audience will not have come across this particular procedural mechanism before, noting that it dates all the way back to 1879. So could you provide us with a little legal history lesson, John? Very happy to, Kerry. Uh, So an application can be made under the Banker's Book Evidence Act for disclosure of bank documents for use in legal proceedings. 
It's important to note that these applications can be made in addition to disclosure applications under the civil procedure rules and other avenues for obtaining disclosure. And what's quite interesting, you referred to the longevity of the Act. Despite that, there's been relatively little reported authority interpreting the Act. So anyway, going back to uh, the current case, uh, the application here was brought by the CFO of a telecommunications company for access to bank documents for use in Canadian extradition proceedings. In summary, the court found that it had no jurisdiction under the Act to make the order. And in particular, the court said that the Act is limited to UK legal proceedings and does not extend to making orders for the purposes of foreign proceedings. It also found that the documents and records sought did not fall within the scope of the Act, which is limited to transactional records. And finally, on the facts of the case, the court said that it would not have exercised its discretionary power to grant the application anyway, for a number of reasons, which can be found in our blog post linked to the show notes. But I've chosen to highlight this current decision as it's a reassuring one for financial institutions faced with applications under the Act. As I mentioned, the applications can be made alongside traditional disclosure process within the framework of the CPR, and they therefore have the potential to be used or abused by claimants seeking to cast a wide net in order to find documents to support their case. Uh, And this obviously has the potential to ramp up the time and costs incurred by bank uh, on disclosure issues. So it sounds like this decision is helpful to banks by illustrating the narrow scope of the court's jurisdiction under the Act? Yes, uh, very reassuring, and it helpfully confirms the limits on the type of documents which may be requested, as well as underlining the importance of the discretionary nature of the court's power uh, to grant uh, disclosure under the Act. Well, that's all um, on disclosure. Um, We have a regulatory update uh, now, um, quite a a significant one, uh, and I'm going to hand over to Kerry. Thanks, John. So a final quick one from me on the FCA's long-awaited consultation on duty of care, which has now been published and is open until the 31st of July this year. So from the looks of it, this umbrella term has morphed into a proposed package of measures intended to deliver better outcomes for consumers together a new consumer duty. The proposals will apply to regulated products and services sold to retail clients. So that will include SMEs. And while the FCA has not made any specific proposals on a private right of action, it has asked for stakeholder views on this point. Our regulatory team has provided a fair bit of detail on all of this in their recent blog post. So I'll direct you there uh, with a link in the show notes to read more. Thank you very much, Kerry. I I think this is very much a case of watch this space and we'll give you uh, future updates on this um, uh, as they appear. Well, um, thank you all uh, very much. Thank you to our guest speaker, uh, Annabelle, uh, this afternoon. And we look forward to welcoming you back um, in March 2022 when it comes around. Podcasters, I hope that we've shone some late spring sunshine into your headsets this afternoon. Um, And Kerry, my co-host, thank you very much for such a comprehensive uh, session this afternoon. And Annabelle, for your excellent production as always. Podcasters, we look forward to seeing you soon. All the best.